So, uh, we're going to um, spend a little bit of time in the Word of God this morning, and then we're going to break bread together, which will be great. We love to do that here. So, we started last week this uh, idea of the impossible series, how to do what is easier said than done. So, lots of things in the Word of God that seem easier said than done. They seem to me really impossible. So, last week, we looked at walking by faith. What does it mean, and how do you do that? How do you walk by faith? And today, we're going to look at an even tougher subject, I would suggest, which is to love your enemies. How do we love our enemies? Now, what we talked about in the past when we, is very much how we connect with each other. So our commitment to Christ is seen by Christ through our commitment to the body of Christ. So when Jesus wants to know how much you love him, he wants to see, well, how much do you look after the orphans and the widows in their distress? How much do you care for those who can't give you anything back in return? And then that's extended, I believe, to this idea of loving our enemies. Now, I don't know if, when I say love your enemies, if any of you have someone in mind. I don't know. Uh, I don't, uh, but maybe you do. Uh, But we all get attacked from time to time, don't we? Um, So we've never talked about this before, but um, when we first launched the church... Um, kind of nine, ten months ago, uh, we put uh, details out on nextdoor.com and social media. And I remember getting quite a little bit of pushback from people, uh, partly because people weren't sure what the church was about. People were worried, people had been hurt by church before. So I had, for months and months and months, kind of like online conversations with people, private conversations with people. We even had people over to our home, and uh, we know that the answer to all life's problems is a good cup of tea. So we made them a cup, cup of tea, and we talked through our problems. We all get attacked from time to time, don't we? And uh, I remember at the time on social media um, seeing some comments from Christians thinking, that's really helpful. And then sometimes seeing some thinking, that's actually quite unhelpful. Uh, I've got a friend who uh, works in uh, media. He works uh, for a company that handles the McDonald's accounts advertising. And they did some research recently. And some research has come out about the way we use social media. Uh, And one of the facts is that Uh, The more positive you are on social media, the more positive light people will see you in, even if they don't agree with you. And the more negative you are on social media, the more negative light people will see you in, even if they actually agree with you. Now, for me, uh, we often talk about this, that the reason we exist, the reason you exist, is because God did not have anyone exactly like you. And he wanted someone exactly like you. So the influence there is that you're different in somehow. And when the differences mix together, we rub up against each other sometimes, don't we? Uh, The reason you're made in the image of God, and every one of us is, is so we can help people who don't know what God looks like imagine him. And so when light comes into darkness, there's always a reaction. So what we're not going to talk about this morning is, why do we need to love our enemies? We're going to ask, can you actually do it? And how would you do that? And as per usual, the way we're going to do that is look at what Jesus did. So uh, let's open our Bibles. I'm going to turn to John chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 2. Um, you can turn your Bible on. Most of us have it on our phones or our tablets. If not, don't worry. Just listen to my beautiful voice um, speaking the way Jesus spoke in English. And uh, that was a joke. And you can... Uh, okay. At, yeah, at version, yeah. At dawn, he appeared again, this is Jesus, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group 
and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, that any, of, any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one is no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. So um, I don't believe when it says love your enemies that Jesus is saying, I want you to have nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about those who attack you. I think Jesus is talking about love in a proactive action way. We need to show love to those who hurt us. We need to love them, but we need to show love, not just feel love. So I'm going to look at five things that Jesus did that helped me at least try the best I can with God's help to love my enemies. So let's pray, and then we're going to start a little bit going through these five things as quick as we possibly can. Let me just pray. I wonder if anybody could get me a glass of water or a cup of water. Thanks, Donna. Thank you. Lord, we just uh, thank you for your goodness and your love. We pray, Lord, that while we were against you, so many of us, Lord, you had the patience and you had the love for us. I pray right now as we go through these principles, you would give us wisdom and insight in what it means to love our enemies. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I noticed, thank you, Donna, is this, is that love believes offense is a choice. So last night I had a dream. Last night I had a dream and I went to heaven in my dream last night. It was amazing. I went to heaven. It was beautiful. It was all an amazing place. Heaven's amazing. The beach was fantastic. It was, I was a bit worried because when I got there, it was hot. But he said, uh, the archangel said to me, don't worry, it's just summertime. And it was quite, it was like a, a beach and then there was a pool. The pools were beautiful. I said, the pools look fantastic. He says, yeah, we have them all year round. He said, your pools are open all year round? He said, yeah. He said, Howard's not come here yet. He's still alive, Howard. So I said, that's fantastic. That's amazing. That's wonderful. And he was showing me all around. The, oh, it was amazing. And at one point, he showed me this room. And in this room, it was full of clocks. I thought, this is very strange, a room full of clocks. I said, what's this room? He said, oh, well, this is just a simple way that we keep an eye on how, how people are doing and their sins. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, every, time, every day has a clock, and every time someone sins, the little, the little second hand moves once or twice over a period of time. I, I looked confused because he said, give me somebody you know, and I'll show you what I mean. I said, well, I know Kerry. Do you have Kerry's clock? He said, yeah, it's Kerry's clock. She told me to Kerry's clock. It was 10 past 1 in the morning. He said, she's obviously a good girl. I said, she is. She's a really good girl, is Kerry. Ten past one. I said, do you know Matt Riley? He said, oh, yeah, Matt Riley's clock. He said, 11 o'clock in the morning. I thought, okay, that makes sense. I said, what about Howard's clock? Said, Howard's clock, oh, there it is. 6 p.m. 6 p.m. in the evening. I said, that, so that makes sense because every time I see him, he always says to me, well, it's 6 o'clock somewhere. So I thought, that's fair enough. Turns out alcohol is a sin. So I'm looking around. It was amazing. And then, but then 
I couldn't see Bob's clock anywhere. I said, where's Bob's clock? He said, oh, Bob, Bob's clock's not here. Bob Kemble's, no, Bob's clock's not here. So where is it? Oh, Paul the Apostle has Bob's clock. So why he has it? He has it in his study. He uses it as a fan. <laughs> so the reason I don't tell jokes is because all my jokes are abusive. Um, but the reason I can tell a joke here is because I know the people I've just mentioned, with the exception of one of the two of them right now, love me. And love believes offense is a choice. If you notice in this passage, it says, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this one was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? She stands before a group, many of them judging her, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of law taking great offense at what she's done. But why? She's not offended them. The one person who should have been offended wasn't. Why? Because of love. When there's great love, we realize that we can choose to take offense because we built up the time making those relationships. Caring about people. How do you love your enemies? Get to know them. Because everybody at some point is lovable. Um, there's a great story told about a, a man leaning over a fence. Maybe you've heard it. And uh, another traveler comes along and he's leaning over a fence uh, by his village. And a traveler comes over and um, a traveler comes to this old man and says, excuse me, I'm thinking of moving to your village. Can you tell me what your village is like? And he says, well, the village is, um, before I tell you, what, what's the village like where you've just come from? He said, oh, I said, the people are a bit mean, a bit nasty. Um, they can be quite gossipy. They're not very kind. And the man said, oh, he said, I'm, I'm sad to tell you, you're going to find the same in this village as well. So the traveler said, okay, and he, he walked on by, quite sad. About an hour later, a different guy came up, said the same thing, excuse me, I'm, I'm thinking of coming to this village, can you tell me what it's like? And the old man said, well, first tell me what it's like in your village. He said, well, he said, it's fantastic my village, I'm really sad to go, people are kind, people are nice, people, people love me, people say kind words, I've just got to leave, my, my job's changed. And the old man said, you're going to love it here because people are exactly the same. Is that here? The moral being that we take who we are with us. And when we think about if you're a prickly kind of person, you're probably going to be prickly everywhere you go. The reality is the more time we spend with people, the more eventually we can get to know them. And if we go with that in mind, I believe, as I'm looking at what Jesus did, because he spent time with sinners, didn't he, Jesus? He spent time with the very people who should have offended his senses. He got to know them. He asked questions. He tried to figure out why they were the way they were and spent time with them. That's how we learn to love our enemies. Second thing is love believes the best in others. Matthew 5 verse 2 to 3 says this. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. So there's a, a few interesting things that are going on here in this story. One of them, wow, would you just open that for us, please? 
Thank you. Uh, one of them is, sorry, I've got a cold, so my throat's locking up. I apologize. Thank you. Um, so one of them is that uh, the law went like this. If someone's caught in adultery, what should have happened was the woman and the man should have been brought before the priests or the teachers, plus all the people who accused the woman who were witnesses and saw this happen. But there was nobody there. They simply brought the woman. So who is she accused by? What was next supposed to happen was the, the priest was supposed to write the name of the accused and the specific law they broke uh, on the ground or released in dust. That's why Jesus does it. Because what Jesus does when he, when, he, um, when he bends down and when he writes, he's showing them just by the act of doing it that they've not fulfilled the law themselves. They've not done anything that they were supposed to do. They've not brought the man. They've not brought witnesses. And they've not done the thing they're supposed to do, which is to write down the specific law they broke and the name of the accused, including the man and the woman. As he does it, what he's doing is he's pointing out to them they've not done what they should do. And what Jesus is doing is he's checking the facts. He's looking for the best. Um, there's a, another interesting story I like to tell. I'm just going to put these two together and then just make a point of something I've learned. There's a story of um, a general and his handsome lieutenants who got on a train. And what they got on a train, they got into one of those old compartments and they were faced opposite a very beautiful young lady and her grandmother who was escorting her, her chaparral. Now, as they're on this journey, what's happening is the young lieutenant is making eyes at the young woman who blushes a little bit, but then makes eyes back at him. Much to the annoyance of the grandmother and the general who wants him to be more professional. And then suddenly, they go through a tunnel and everything goes pitch black. And all you can hear are two noises. A kiss and a slap. And then they come out of the tunnel and the light's back on. And everybody's kind of looking. And the young lady is a little bit upset. She's really happy that the lieutenant gave her a kiss, but she's a bit annoyed at her grandma for slapping him. The grandmother was unhappy for different reasons. She was unhappy at the lieutenant for having the audacity to kiss her granddaughter, but she was quite pleased that her granddaughter had clearly slapped him back. The general was perhaps most upset because he was privately a little bit proud that his lieutenant had had the chutzpah to do this, but he was a bit upset that she had slapped him. Only lieutenant was happy because he had taken the opportunity to kiss a beautiful young lady and slap his own general. <laughs> he was the only one who understood what had really actually happened. And how do we love our enemies? We find out and we know the facts. We seek out the best in people. Um, what I've learned is this is that Christians don't, tell to t uh, don't tend to tell lies, so we've got really good at putting the spin on things. And often when somebody says, oh, somebody said this about you, Paul, or someone's done this, what I've noticed is quite often it comes with a little bit of a spin. Maybe they did say that, but maybe not with the tone that it was then reported to me. One of the things we need to do if we're to love our enemies is first find out if they're our enemies in the first place. 
One of the great things of the last few months we put in the church here and meeting people who were a little bit concerned was actually getting to meet them and find out they weren't my enemies at all. They just had concerns usually from the past. And so it's often important that we actually check out the facts. And we don't want to be too late in doing that. We want to do that first. We want to find out, is this person really my enemy? Why is this really happening? What are they actually really saying? What's really going on here? Is it what I think? Or am I just presuming things? Someone once went to a rabbi and said to the rabbi, um, I've just been gossiping about someone. And I've just found out now that what I was saying was untrue. I'd been told it by someone else. How can I fix it? The rabbi said, no problem. Take these chicken feathers and on your way home today, I want you to spread them on the road to create a path to get back to your house. So he spreads the feathers and then, and then come back the next day and pick them up. So the next day, the guy gets up and on his way back to the rabbi, tries to pick up the chicken feathers, but they've all disappeared. And he gets to the rabbi and says, I'm so sorry, all the feathers have blown away. And the rabbi said to him, exactly, that's what it's like when you gossip. You can say the words, but you can't control what happens next. It's always best to find out the facts in advance. What Jesus does by writing down is he's highlighting there are no facts here. There's nothing. This, this woman is not my enemy. I don't know if this is true. There are no facts going on here. You've not done what you should do. The third thing that I think is helpful about this is that love believes it will be vindicated. John 8, uh, verse 8, I think it is, verse 9 says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. So there are no FYIs in the Bible. There's no just information, just, hey, yeah, they went, the older one went first and the younger ones went later on. There's no FYIs at all in the Bible. Everything there has a purpose. So what's the purpose behind this? Now, we do have Reem at the church on Tuesdays and Thursday nights now, and we realize that when you just study the Bible superficially, you don't often find out what's really happening. So, for instance, if you just study the Bible superficially, you know that Jesus wrote, but you don't know what he wrote. If you study the Bible, you find out what he wrote, and we're going to mention what he wrote in a moment. You also find out some other stuff uh, as well. So you find out why the elder ones left before the younger ones. So earlier in the discussion, before this, in the previous chapter, Jesus has said, as Scripture says. So before this had happened, there was, a, there was a, a passage in Scripture and there was a discussion where Jesus was talking about being the Messiah. He's basically claiming to be the Messiah. And he basically calls himself, um, uh, he was the fountain or the font of living water, which is a description of the Messiah. And then he does something that only the Messiah does, which means right on the ground. So what happened was every year, at Yom Kippur, which is a special celebration, the high priest would get baptized in water. And when the high priest came out, he would declare this messianic verse. Let me read it to you. It's from Jeremiah verse 17, verse 13. Listen to it really carefully. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. So he's talking about the Messiah. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So basically, he just said to them, I am the spring of living water. He claims to be the Messiah. They bring this woman to trap him. 
and he bends down and starts writing in the sand. What did he put in the dust? What did he probably write? He probably wrote, because of this, what's called a remez, he probably wrote the, not the accused names, but the accusers' names. But to be honest, he didn't even need to do that. Just writing was so symbolic that they're realizing those who are turning away from the Messiah will have their names written in the sand. But why did the eldest leave before the youngest? And why is that even mentioned in the Bible? What's that got to do with this principle? Basically, if you were male, from the age of 12, you'd heard this, <coughs> excuse me, you'd heard this verse once every year. So the older you were, the more often you'd heard this verse. As Jesus is writing, what's happening is people are realizing the second time what's going on here. And embarrassed or repentant, they're walking away. The eldest first because they've heard it more often than anybody else. It's clicking with them what's actually going on a lot quicker. And Jesus is being vindicated. Love believes it will be vindicated. Jesus gave them a chance in fact, Jesus actually gave them two chances. And Jesus wasn't defensive because he knew the consequences of what would happen next. Jesus is vindicated. The Bible promises us that if we act the way God asks us to, if we just don't attack our enemies, if we turn the other cheek, eventually we will be vindicated. Eventually people will realize what's actually going on. When the Pharisees and Jesus would have arguments, most people didn't understand the law to the level that Jesus and the Pharisees did. They, they would watch from a distance going, I don't really understand what's going on here. I don't really realize who, who's right and who's wrong. Have you ever been like that? You've heard about two people arguing and you try to figure out who's right and who's wrong and you kind of can't, can't quite see it. What convinced people was the way in which Jesus reacted. Because the way he reacted fulfilled so many of the commandments in the word of God. And people who don't know the Lord will begin to believe the Lord, not necessarily because they suddenly understand that we're right or we're wrong, but partly because of our, the Holy Spirit within us and the reaction that we have when we're attacked. And God wants us to understand how important it is. Because love believes but does not condone Believing the best in someone does not mean you have to accept the worst in them. Um, John 8 said this, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. At no point does Jesus say, it's okay to do what you're doing. At no point. I, this is just 30 years of being in ministry and 30 years of helping people just with forgiveness and anger and all those kind of issues, what I've noticed is that sometimes the reason we don't forgive is because we think that by forgiving people, we're saying what they did was okay. But that, that's, not, that's not what happens when you forgive. When Jesus forgave you, when he forgave me, was he saying that what I did was okay? Not at all. He's just saying what you did is wrong, but I forgive you because I'm clothed in his righteousness, not my own. And so what we've got here is this wonderful thing that we can, we can um, have enemies and they can do bad things against us and we can forgive them. We don't have to say what they do is right. 
And I think that's really important for us to understand because for some people, that's an obstacle. Well, I can't forgive because if I forgive or if I act well, I'm kind of condoning what they have done. No, Jesus didn't. You don't have to. But what you do have to understand is this uh, next and final principle, which is love believes in consequences. Love believes in consequences. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't want to condemn her before her time. He wanted her to have grace and space and a chance to repent. What's interesting was in the law, when it said you had to write in in the dust, it didn't have to be on the ground. It could be on a wall. It could be on a door. It could be anywhere. The only part of the law that connected them was it had to be in dust. Why? Because it was temporary. It had to be in dust. Our sins, God sees our sins, but he gives us time so they just become dust and they blow away. He wants to forgive us. His, his heart is to forgive us. His heart is love. And that's what he's asking of us for others as well. Is yeah, we may, be, we may know what they've done, but the word of God says the love does not keep a record of wrongs. So it's in the dust, but he's looking to forgive because Jesus understood there was a time coming when she would be judged. In fact, Jesus went to the cross for our sins. He went to the cross for her sins. He went to the cross for my sins. And as we break bread in a few minutes, we need to remember what that looks like. You know, we, we know from books outside of the Bible what crucifixion looked like. And, and some of you have heard these stories before. But I think it's important when we think about loving our enemies. Because sometimes when I see us react to our enemies, sometimes I ask myself the question, do we really believe this? Do we really believe the word of God? Because if someone's lying about me, what I'm always getting reminded of is if I believe that lying is a sin and there will be consequences for the per- per- person who lies then I start to feel something for them. If I meet someone who's bitter and twisted and angry, and I meet people like that, and they're bitter and twisted and angry against me, I often remember, well, there's probably stuff happening in their life that's not that great. I believe in consequences of that. If they're being nasty towards me, they're probably being nasty towards other people and reaping the consequences of that. So how much do we believe that? When Jesus died on the cross... We know the pain that he went through. We know that there were three types of crosses. There was a T, there was an X, and there was a cross as we imagine it. We know that Jesus died on the cross as we imagine it because that was the cross that was used by the Romans whenever they put a sign up, and they would put a sign up with Jesus. We know that Jesus, when he was lifted, he wasn't, he wasn't nailed to a cross. He was nailed lying down with his knees bent. I know you will know this, and one foot above the other. When the stake went into, or the nail went into his feet, he was purposely had a bend in his legs. And when the cross went up and was dropped in, normally many of the bones would have come out of lodge, and it would have been very hard to breathe because of the way his body was shaped. So to breathe, he would have had to push up. To push up would have been agonizing pain because of the pain on his feet. And we know it would have taken a long time for him to die. That was the purpose of crucifixion. We know that. We know that Jesus would have seen around about 2,000 crucifixions at one point because the Romans in the lifetime of Jesus had crucified about 2,000 people, history tells us. 
So this agonizing time. We know that usually people were left there until they died and they were eaten by animals because they weren't raised up as you see in Hollywood. They were like one or two feet just above where you could go and talk to them and tease them if you wanted to. We know that Jesus and the, sorry, the Romans had made an agreement with the Jews of that time that um, because of the Jewish law that they would be uh, killed quicker and buried. And that's why we know that they would come and they would put a spear in the side. Usually they would break the legs with the mallet. That was the quickest way because then they couldn't um, uh, breathe and that they would basically um, die quicker that way. We know through Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is not um, a, a Bible book, we know that people, when they saw, when they were on the way to crucifixion, we know that many of them would have been absolutely white. They were described as ghosts because of fear. that They were so pale because of the fear of what was about to happen to them. We know that some lost the power of their voice because of fear. And there's recorded evidence in Roman times of people literally losing their mind because of fear. And many, many, many couldn't walk because of fear. We know Jesus went there knowing what happened. He'd seen many people crucified in the past. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and he did it willingly. Even though in many ways we were his enemy, he did it willingly because of love. It's love that makes the difference. And if there's one key to loving our enemies, I think it's this, is that we believe the word of God. We believe that our enemies who attack us have some awful consequences. And unless you're completely dead inside, if you believe that, you'll care and love them and want to maybe rescue them. You won't disengage and think, well, forget them. You'll want to find out the truth, get involved, make connections, speak truth, hope and believe that God will vindicate. Love is so important, but belief is the key to love. And this morning, as we break bread, we're going to remember something really important. We're going to remember the Bible says this about communion. So if anyone who eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's harsh language, isn't it? <coughs> In other words, it's saying if you eat, eat, the, eat, remembering what Jesus did for you, but deciding not to do that for one another, you bring judgment upon yourself. <coughs> In the um, early practice of the first Christians, um, they had some extra teaching on this, and this is from the Didashi. So this is like the handbook for ministers from the uh, first century. It said this, Gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after confess your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who is at odds with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profound. So they went so far in the early church that they would say, We don't allow people to break bread together if they're still at odds with someone else. Uh, in the church I used to grow, go to when I became a Christian when I was 14 years old, and the church I grew up in from that age group, when we broke bread, the pastor would always say that's always the best thing. He would say, if you've got something against someone else, don't break bread this morning. Just, you don't have to. Don't break bread this morning. 
Go and first reconcile yourself and then break bread next time. Or if you know in your heart that you are prepared to go and reconcile yourself, then break bread. So if you make a promise to God, Lord, I'm going to break bread because I'm going to, by way of doing this, I'm making a promise, I'm going to reconcile myself, then do it. And I would bring that challenge this morning to us, is that we shouldn't break bread if we have something in our heart against someone else. We have two options, it seems to me. We either wait, wrestle through it, to a place where we can reconcile ourselves, or if you feel you can, then we say, okay, I'm going to do that. I feel God speaking to me. I need to go and reconcile. Lord, as I'm breaking bread, I'm making a promise here that as you've forgiven me, as you died on the cross for me, as you've forgiven my sins, I will go forgive and make up with that person. And I would encourage us to do that this morning. The greatest sign to the world, I believe, of God's love is you. You are God's parable. Jesus told parables, Paul didn't. Why? Because he had the church. You are Paul's parable. You are God's parable of what the church, what the kingdom should look like. And I think that's a, a, an amazing thing for us to think about this morning. So let's pray. Let's close our eyes and we're going to pray. The band's going to come up. And I'm going to have a little bit more worship. Lord, we just uh, thank you because, Lord, when this woman who was brought in adultery, she was no worse or better than uh, any one of us, Lord. We all have sins that separate us from you. And Lord, we all know that we need your forgiveness, your grace, and your love inside us in order to love others. So Lord, as we continue to worship you and later break bread, I pray that you will give us uh, just the heart's desire, Lord, to love you and to show that to you by loving each other, we pray. In your name we ask it, Lord. Amen.